All right, good morning, and once again, guys, I'm excited to be able to go through Mark 11. Sorry, I'm getting my little phone dealy ready to pace myself. So we're in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11, and really, this is a passage that most of you all are familiar with. It's, it's the triumphal entry, which, which is, to be honest, I, I really struggled with this passage. It's one of those passages that I've always read, and, and, I, and, I, and I knew it had some importance, but I never really took time to study, and they had talked about the donkey and, and, and the prophecy, and it was, it's, I don't know if, it was, if, if this passage is odd for you guys when you've ever read it, but it's always been kind of odd to me. But this passage is really cool because, again, nothing in the life of our Lord is insignificant. Everything is significant. And this is just a phenomenal passage. Uh, And to be honest, I never gave it enough credit. There's so much there, and Mark gives us some really cool, really cool detail. And we're going to explore some sweet stuff here in the triumphal entry in verses 1 through 11. And, And as we'll find out, really... I really don't like the idea of the triumphal entry as a name. It's kind of a misnomer. It was triumphant in one sense, but it, it really wasn't. And, we'll, and I'll explain that. And so if you're taking notes, which I hope you guys do in some form or fashion, is the title of this sermon is called The Celebration of an Unwanted King. It's the celebration of an unwanted king. The triumphal entry, Mark edition. This this is such a significant passage. It's actually recorded in all four Gospels, which when something was recorded in all four Gospels, I mean, you better be paying really, really close attention to that because it's pretty significant. It's entitled and has been traditionally called the Triumphal Entry, but we're going to see several things as to why that was not actually really apropos to the moment. And so that's why I entitled the message, The Celebration of an Unwanted King. So to gain our context, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, so follow along with me in your Bibles. In Mark chapter 11, verse 1. So here we go. Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied, at which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on them. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, verse 11, and Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be able to talk about this passage in Scripture. Thank you for the wonderful time of studying of being with you as I have gone through this passage. I pray, God, that you would help me to Communicate your word so that your people are fed your word. We need to hear from you. Lord, make your word come alive. Speak through your truth here in this passage this morning. The unfolding of your word gives light, and we need your light. Give us understanding. Teach us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law, as Psalm 119 says. 
And God, give us ears to hear as we go through this passage. Convict us, challenge us, do whatever you need to do with this message in each and every one of our hearts as we all have unique things in our lives that we need to hear your truth today and how it pertains to them. God, we love you. Help me to be focused. Give me boldness. And continue to, to fill my words with your, with your power so that your people are consumed with your truth. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to preach today. Love you and ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. So Mark chapter 11, verse, verses 1. We're going to be looking at three things this morning. Actually, I want us to look at the preparation of the king. I want us to look at the procession of the king. And finally, the purpose of the king. There's three main ideas I want to uncover that we find in the passage. So let's first look at the preparation of the king. Read with me again in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Again, to get context, remember where we've been. Mark chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, which we just finished up last week with Pastor Kevin, has been like this weird interlude phase in Jesus' life. Jesus, for the first you know, two years of his ministry, was in the whole region of Israel, going through Galilee, preaching, healing people, casting out demons, all that. He goes up to the very northern end of Israel. At Caesarea Philippi, Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ. They believe that he is the Messiah. They believe that he's not only the Son of God, but he is the anointed king who will save them. The disciples believe this, and a lot of other crowds that are following Jesus believe that he is the Messiah also. And we see that Jesus spent about eight months trekking down from the northern end all the way back to the southern end. We read over in Luke that this whole purpose of him coming back down south was to go to Jerusalem. We know that Jesus several times on this journey kept telling the disciples in a group private lesson, hey guys, guess what? Something's going to happen. They're going to betray the Son of Man, me. I'm going to die. And little by little, Jesus keeps revealing to his disciples more and more about what's going to happen to them. So for eight months, Jesus has been prepping his disciples for what was going to happen. As soon as they reached Jerusalem, he was going to be betrayed, he was going to be killed, and then he promised that in three days he would rise. We understand the disciples didn't get that. They didn't understand, and they were so consumed about their own positions of glory in the kingdom. We see that Jesus slaps them on the head and talks to them about humility and what it is to be a steward and what it means to be what we talked about, that word doulos, a slave, and we talked about that word diakonos, which is a deacon, means a busboy. Jesus says, no, to be first in the kingdom, you are a slave to all, and you're to be a servant of all, to be a busboy for all. So we, we see that Jesus had so many cool private lessons with the disciples, but the core of it was preparing them for his death and his resurrection. And so they get now onto the road that leads to Jerusalem. We saw that a few weeks ago. And Jesus has been doing more teaching lessons, more miracles on the road. And now we get here to verse 11. They are two and a half miles out from Jerusalem. Two and a half. You can see Jerusalem from where they are positioned. I want us to look at the setting real fast. Look again. They said they drew near to Jerusalem. They're two and a half miles away. And they're at the towns of Bethpage and Bethany. They're two different towns They're a little bit farther apart, but they're both equally about two and a half miles from Jerusalem. And this was... This is what's interesting, is that Jesus was actually camped at Bethany. As we read the other Gospels, specifically the Gospel of John, Jesus has been using the Bethany as his HQ until he reaches Jerusalem. Do you guys know anything about Bethany at all? Do you guys, does that sound outside of a name of a friend you might have named Bethany? Bethany is actually really significant for several reasons. I'll give you a snapshot. In the future, Bethany will be the place where Jesus ascends into heaven. So that's pretty cool. We don't know that at this point, but we do know this. Mark doesn't give us this detail, but John does. Over in John chapters 11 through 12, Jesus approaches Bethany 
and something happens. On the way to Jerusalem, he is encountered by a messenger and says, Jesus, you're one of your best friends, Lazarus, is sick. He's on the verge of death. And Jesus says, okay, because I love Lazarus, I'm not going to go to him. And it startled everyone and freaked people out. Jesus waited for days while Lazarus was dying, and he let Lazarus die. And we read that he did it so that he would be glorified through his death. Because when Jesus reached Bethany, he rose Lazarus again from the dead. Remember, there was, there was another instance earlier in Mark where we saw a resurrection with Jairus' daughter. It was with a small group of people. It was the inner three of the disciples. It was James, John, and Peter. They alone got to saw it along with, along with Jairus' dad and mom. But this time, he specifically staged this event. He let his best, one of his best friends die so that he could come and show off his glory and power. All of his miracles had been phenomenal, but he outdid himself, if we can say that to some extent, with this miracle with Lazarus, because he made it public. Lazarus, we don't know much about him, but he was a pretty important guy, because everyone seemed to revere him and esteem him. There was crowds, massive crowds around Lazarus's tomb at this point, and Jesus came, and the crowds were confused, they said, if Jesus could heal blind people and could make crippled people walk, why didn't, they he, why didn't he heal Lazarus, whom he loved? And Jesus, according to his timetable, because he's cool like that, he told them to open up Lazarus' grave. He'd been dead for four days. The stench was high. People were freaked out. But reluctantly, they rolled away the stone. And Jesus spoke into the grave. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus, Lazarus comes out, still in his burial clothes, and he's alive. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, and was it private? Mm-mm. It was public. Massive crowds of people witnessed this, and they were astounded. So the news of what Jesus did went everywhere. The whole town, the whole region was buzzing. John tells us that groups of Jews went back to Jerusalem and proclaimed, did you hear that guy Lazarus? Yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. Well, you know he died, right? Yeah, that was very sad. Guess what? Jesus rose him again from the dead. The whole town of Bethany and Pethpage were, were buzzing with what Jesus did, and it was spreading all throughout Israel, and it reached Jerusalem's gates, and the whole town was electrified by what Jesus did. Jesus was making a statement. He was prepping Jerusalem for his coming. He was saying, all right, guys, this is it. I'm coming to town, and I want you guys to get excited. I'm going to give you a little bit of taste and what your appetite. You're going to be coming, and you're going to see me, the guy who just raised Lazarus from the dead. I have power. Jesus was showing off and extent his glory and the resurrection power that he has for all who trust in him. And the town was ecstatic. They were anticipating Jesus. And they were anticipating that when Jesus came, something big was going to happen. They were anticipating that something big was going to happen in Jerusalem. And they were excited for it. But some of the Jews weren't so jazzed about it. Some of the Jews we see in John went over to Jerusalem and they tattled. I don't like tattlers. Have you guys ever had someone tattle on you just because they were trying to be annoying or to be a jerk? And they, and they want to get back at you and hurt you? So There's a lot of people who didn't like Jesus. So the group that didn't like Jesus, they went to Jerusalem, and they went to Jesus' chief opponents, the Pharisees. They went into their, their synagogue meeting. It'd be like a whole bunch of messengers coming in, these people from off the street, into our meeting and says, hey, look, that Jesus guy whom you ate, he just rose Lazarus back from the dead. 
And you think the Pharisees would have been like, whoa, that's amazing. What do they say? They said, darn it, we have to kill him. We've been wanting to, but we can't afford not to anymore. We have to kill him. While some people got jazzed by what Jesus did, they got irritated. It said that they were furious. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to murder him in cold blood if they could. And we're going to see in the next few days of Jesus' life, they wanted to at so many instances, but they couldn't because they were cowards. But then they found their opportunity. So what Jesus did, he's in Bethany. He raises Lazarus from the dead. The whole town, the whole region gets buzzing. Jerusalem gets buzzing about it. The Pharisees get angry, and they decided to kill him. They actually spread a report to say, if anyone knows the whereabouts of Jesus, turn him in so we might arrest him. I think of Robin Hood in like medieval times when someone is wanted. They had a wanted poster for Jesus. And they said, if you know where he's at, come find us so we can arrest him. What's cool about Jesus is he knew this too, just as a side note, and, and I have to think that Jesus was like, all right, bring it on a little bit, because he knew what he was doing. He staged it. This was all very calculated in his mind, because God does nothing capriciously. It was very intentional. Jesus did what he did for specific reasons, and one of the reasons was that he got stuff, he, got, he stirred up the pot in Jerusalem so that he would eventually die. In God's sovereignty and ordination, he did his work with Lazarus in such a way that inspired awe and, and worship in one sense, and to the Pharisees inspired hatred and murderous intent. And that is exactly what God intended so that Jesus could go to the cross. Jesus was stirring up the pot and was saying, you know what, I know you guys think I'm, I'm a wanted man. He knew that the, there were people who wanted him dead, but he rises into Jerusalem anyway. So he's in Bethany. He rose Lazarus from the dead. He stirred the pot. Everyone is buzzing with what's going on. The Jews were anticipating something big. Over in John 11, 55 through 56, John says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And because of what Jesus had did with Lazarus and Bethany just several weeks ago, they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Do you think he will come to the festival or not at all? They were anticipating that Jesus would do something amazing. And we know that Jesus will. So Jesus is camped in Bethany. He's staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, his closest friends. Lazarus is, is alive. He's doing well. The whole town is buzzing, and everyone knows that Jesus most likely is going to come to Jerusalem. Why they're going to Jerusalem? We know it's the Passover. According to the Jewish law, three times a year with different holidays, especially this one, the Passover, which is the Jewish biggie, faithful Jews from all over the world were going to Jerusalem. If Jesus was going to be in Jerusalem. It would be at this time. They knew for sure that if he was a faithful Jew, that he would be here. They anticipated him. So they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Christ is waiting until the right time to enter. And he's at his closest friend's house. They're having dinner. What's cool, Bethany's also the place where Mary anoints Jesus' feet. And we see that Judas gets irritated by her anointing. And he says, couldn't this money have been used for the poor? And that event would spark the last thing in Judas's mind to betray Jesus because he thought Jesus wasn't who he wanted. He thought Jesus wasn't worth it anymore. And he went and saw the wanted poster. And a few days later, he's going to go to the Pharisees and say, how much are you going to give me for that guy? 
He's camped in Bethany. He's getting anointed by Mary. He's being served by his best friends. The town is buzzing. And what's really cool is that where they are seated geographically, they're above on a higher hill from Jerusalem. He sees Jerusalem. And he's about to depart. He's about to depart, and he's going about to make his entrance into a town that is anticipating his arrival. And I want us to look at the sending. We see in verse 2 that Jesus sends two disciples to grab a donkey. He says to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. So we see that Jesus sends his disciples on a mission to go grab a donkey. He sends them, he tells them exactly what to say so they can capture the donkey. They say it, and they bring the donkey back to Jesus, and Jesus rides off. He gives them some of the details about the animal. They complete the assignment, and everything is exactly as Jesus said. Now, this is the part that has always interested me. I didn't, under really, I didn't really understand about the donkey. I mean, how many of you guys understand the importance of the donkey right now before I, I preach it? If you do, really good. I really didn't understand it before I read it, I'll be honest. I knew it was somewhat of a prophecy, but again, I never really camped on it, so I never really studied. But it's really cool, this whole deal about, about donkeys. So I want to give you a little bit of information about a donkey. Mark actually uses this word called a colt. In Greek, it's polos, which means the young of any animal. It could be the young of an elephant or of a locust. So it's a very generic term. But what's really neat is over in Matthew, we see specifically that it was the colt of a donkey or the foal of a donkey, the beast of burden. We see that, that it was a donkey's colt. And you guys are like, well, what's, what's, what's up with donkeys? I mean, what's significant about it? Well, donkeys were used a lot for travel. I mean, we have, you know, BMWs, we have, we have Beatles today, we have, uh, we know, we have little buggies, uh, we have motorcycles, we have little weird scooters that people tend to like here in Springfield. Um, lots of transportation. The primary transportation of the day was, was on foot. Some people rode camels, some people rode horses, not many, more of the dignified people, but a lot of people did use donkeys. They were a domesticated animal at the time, and they were renowned for their strength and they were normally ridden by non-military personnel. So it was a kind of a common, the donkey was a common average animal. It wasn't really anything significant. But here's what's interesting, is kings, military, mighty men, noblemen of dignity, they wouldn't be caught dead on a donkey. If you were going to make a statement, you were going to ride in on a mighty horse. If you were going to lead a battle like the Jews were thinking Jesus would do against the Romans, you would be on a mighty steed, a powerful horse. Or if you know Lord of the Rings, it would be Shadow Fox, you know? It, 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 would, be, it would be a creature of, of, of a stallion or whatever. But Jesus didn't roll according to people's style. He, he chose a donkey, which is interesting. It'd be like seeing the President of the United States. It'd be like seeing Barack Obama, you know, drive in in my 91 Oldsmobile. It has, it has paint coming off and all that. The Oldsmobile, for me, it's fine. It's a common car. For the President of the United States, that just sounds kind of weird, kind of sounds hokey, kind of sounds just silly. So why is Jesus concerned with a donkey? It's interesting, and we're going to explain why. Because so far from what we have recorded in the Gospels, Jesus has always walked. This is the very first time that we will see that Jesus actually rides any animal, which is pretty significant, and we're going to impact that. But Jesus rides this animal. 
He's going for the first time to ride on a donkey, and he's going to Jerusalem. And we see, not in Mark, but over in, in Matthew, the reason why it was to fulfill specific prophecy. Matthew tells us over in his gospel the reason why. He says, excuse me, get to the right paper here. Matthew 21, verse 4 says, now, they, now this took place, meaning Jesus entering into Jerusalem, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and we know the prophet is Zechariah. And he goes on and he records the prophecy. So here's the deal. Jesus asked for a donkey. The very first time he's ever ridden anything, the disciples would have understood that. They probably were probably clueless as to why he was requesting that. But they were faithful. They go and they get the donkey. But Jesus is being very calculating here. He's being very intentional. It seemed insignificant at the time, but this was a prophecy 500 years in the making. This prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 was 500 years before Christ. Saying this, in Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He is humble, and he is mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the full of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 is quoting specifically what Jesus is about to do. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as we speak, a prophecy made 500 years before Christ ever entered, and Jesus is fulfilling it to the detail. He's going to Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill this expectation of God's Savior, of the Messiah. And why is that? There are a few reasons, but I want you to look at first the significance of a donkey. His nickname is the Beast of Burden. Because you throw, you threw your clothes on it, you threw your saddle on it, you threw a whole bunch of food on it. It, it just, it took burdens, it took weight that wasn't his to carry it. There's symbolism in that. Because Christ, we know from Isaiah 53, is our burden carrier. He took, Jesus Christ took the burden for sin. He took the burden for sin on himself. Isaiah 53, verse 3, talks about Christ bore our transgressions, and he was chastised for our punishment. The iniquity of us all fell on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus symbolized that he was the one who would be the burden lifter of sinners. Jesus is the one who took the load and weight of our sin on himself, and he was riding to Jerusalem to fulfill that destiny, to fulfill that purpose. Remember, he had predicted it before several times for eight months. He's been telling the guys, look, guys, the Son of Man, that's me, the Messiah. I'm going to be go. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Look, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Look, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. Look, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. Why? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, I preached on Mark 10.45, which is the chief verse of all of Mark. It's Jesus' life motto. It's Jesus' mission statement. He says, for this reason, he's going to Jerusalem to die, so that the Son of Man would be the ransom for many. He came to serve humanity by being the payment that would set us as slaves to sin free. Every one of us has sinned and broken God's law. We have all faltered. We've all failed short. We all make mistakes. 
Like I told Noah, we all are born with bad hearts, and Jesus came so he could be the one to do everything necessary to cleanse us from sin, to free us from that debt. We owe God tremendous debt that we can never pay because of our sin. We have broken his law. We owe a million dollars infinitely times infinitely, square plus, whatever, to God because of sin. And we could not pay that debt. And Jesus says, the Son of Man, me, is coming into Jerusalem to die so that I could be your ransom. That I would put down my perfect life to exchange for your imperfect life. Jesus is riding to Jerusalem to die. And he will be the burden lifter, symbolized riding this insignificant animal who just happens to have the nickname the Beast of Burden. Because Christ is the one who bears sinners' burdens. So he goes into Jerusalem because he's wanting to save his people. Over in Zechariah 9, 9, going back to the prophecy, he uses the language, daughter of Zion. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. It's a synonym for Jerusalem at the time. Uh, when Zechariah made this prophecy, the people were in exile because of, they, were, they disobeyed God, they're in judgment, they were dispersed in Babylon, they were under the, th- the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar, they were under terrible oppression. And he says, look guys, behold, I am sending you a deliverer, I'm sending one who will save you, and he will be humble, he will be endowed with salvation, he's going to come humble, mounted on a donkey. He set their minds on the promise of God's deliverance, but it wouldn't come through the might of Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great at the time or anyone else, not a military king or commander, conqueror. It would be through a humble servant. It would be through Christ. It would be through Christ. We see that the Jews struggle with this. The rabbis at the time really struggled with this verse because they saw the, the coming of the Messiah and that's why many Jews don't believe today. They saw the coming of, as the, of, the, of the Messiah as a single event. They thought he would come in and he would literally free them from political oppression. They were under Roman oppression. They've been under oppression for hundreds of years. The Jews were like, okay, God, if you really are God, why aren't you doing anything? Save us. Come on. Free us. That's what we're looking for. And they thought, we are under the worst oppression we've ever had. If the Messiah was going to come, it'd be now. If the Messiah was going to come, then he's going to cut off the emperor's head. He's going to free us from Jerusalem. There's going to be bloodshed, and there's going to be guts and gore, and we're going to be excited because our enemies will be killed, and we will be free, and our capital will be raised to the prominent place it had once before. That's what the Jews were ecstatic about. That's what they were anticipating. That's what they were longing for. But that is not, if they were paying attention, the kind of Messiah that God had promised to deliver. Because God doesn't like to roll the way we think. He has his own style. And it's a cool style. Jesus didn't enter Jerusalem to wage war. He didn't enter with, with a strong, mighty horse. He didn't ride in with Shadow Fox. Or if you play Zelda, Epona. He didn't ride in on a, on a, on a mighty animal. He rode in on a beast of burden to symbolize his humility and being the savior of the world. Jesus' campaign, Jesus' war, wasn't against the Romans like the Jews anticipated. It wasn't against the Gentiles. Jesus' war wasn't on mankind and people. Jesus' campaign and his conquest would be on sin and of death. It would be a spiritual campaign. It would be a spiritual conquest initially. It was for the salvation and liberation of sinners. His conquest would be over the power of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 
55 through 56 says this, talking about the resurrection of Christ, his victory over death. It says this, and look at this, guys. This is the hope that we get to have in Christ. This is our victory. And this is what Christ is writing to Jerusalem to do for sinners. And if you believe in Christ, this is what Christ was writing to Jerusalem to do for you at this present moment. Is this verse. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then Paul's using this, this wonderful song and mockery of death. So look at this. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And over in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that Christ came to this world to die, that through his death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the, de- that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to be our Savior, to bring the salvation of sinners. He would come in to bring deliverance. And it wasn't what the Jews had anticipated at all. So because of this, to symbolize him being our burden lifter and to fulfill prophecy... He tells the two disciples, hey guys, go fetch me a colt. They're probably like, all right, Jesus, we love you. We don't know what you're doing, but we're going to go. So they go to a village. We don't know what village. But they go, and he puts them on donkey duty. It's kind of funny, you know, to think about that term, donkey duty, but that's what they were. They were on a duty to get a donkey. I don't think they, were, I don't think they realized that they were instruments of a, this divine orchestrational plan, but they were but they were obedient to their master. They said, Jesus, all right, I have no clue what you're, what you're doing, but we're going to go get you this donkey. And we don't know which two disciples. Maybe it was James and John. That'd be fun. All right, James. All right, John, let's go. So they go to this village, this unnamed village, and they gather this donkey. Did they realize they were instruments to fulfill prophecy? Probably not. But here's the cool thing that we could take away from this. It's, it's, it's small, it's passing, but guys, Scripture is replete with, with practical application for us. Here's what's interesting. Although they were on donkey duty, although it seems something very small and inconsequential, for followers of Christ, obedience is never inconsequential. No task for a true believer is insignificant for our Lord. Think about it. No task is. Obedience to Christ, no matter how inconsequential it may appear to us, is ever undervalued or unappreciated to God. If you don't believe me, read Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God is not so cruel and mean as to forget even you serving a cup of water to someone, as Jesus told the disciples earlier in Mark. Even you guys serving a cup of water at our lunch today shows great honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. No amount of obedience, no matter how inconsequential it may appear to us, is inconsequential to God and undervalued in God's eyes. So these two disciples went to the village and they, and, they, and they are giving instructions about what to do so they can dialogue with the owner. So we're gonna, I want you to look at the dialogue here. In verse, in verse 3, Jesus says, Look, if, if anyone has 
if anyone asks you questions, just say this. The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So he tells the disciples, look, if anyone asks you why you're taking this donkey, tell them, oh, the Lord has need of it. Do you guys kind of see how, how weird that would be if you were in the disciples' shoes? Think about it. If I was to tell you to go into a parking lot and just to take this car, it'd be like Jesus saying, hey, guys, I want you to go and I want you to find this uh, 1984 BMW. And if anyone asks you what you're doing taking it, just say, hey, God has need of it. Try going to a Ford dealership and trying that today. I don't think it would work out very well. But think about it, how, how awkward that would be. They didn't have cars, but donkeys were, were their vehicles, you know. They, they, had, they had donkey stations, etc. They were, they, were they, they were tied up. So, so they're going, and I'm sure there's probably ner- they're probably nervous, thinking, all right, okay, we trust Jesus, but this just seems really, really weird. So they approach the donkey, they see the donkey, they see people around, and so, you know, they, they start taking their, a rope, and they're probably just, like, looking over their shoulders a little bit and start walking off, and... Mark doesn't record it, but Matthew does. The owners actually see what's going on, and they say, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you taking this? And they say, well, the Lord has need of it. And what's really cool is because God orchestrates things his way and God's sovereignty, they were cool with it. But it shouldn't be surprising. And why is that? Because these people, what do they just hear about Jesus, the one that's being proclaimed as the Lord and the one who's being proclaimed as the King. They heard he has healed hundreds of thousands of people and he had just raised Lazarus again from the dead. There's, there's this mix of, of God's providence as well as I think God using providentially what he had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. They didn't even have to say it was Jesus. It could have been any Lord. There were many masters and rulers at this time. They said the Lord has need of it. And they knew immediately who they were talking about. And they said, all right, take him. And they were cool with that. So God orchestrated that the disciples going on donkey duty would get this donkey, this beast of burden, to symbolize Christ being our burden lifter. God made it okay that the owners would let this donkey go. And they brings the donkey They bring it back to Jesus, and they say in verse 4 that they threw their cloaks on it. Jesus didn't even have a saddle. That's pretty important. It'd be like you driving a car without a car seat. He didn't have a saddle, but they threw their clothes on it, the clothes off their backs and maybe their loose, loose cloak for the night. They put their sleeping bags on the donkey, and Jesus sat on it. And they departed from where they were at down to Jerusalem so that he could be the savior of the world. It's interesting that Jesus talked about, told him to use this specific dialogue that he did. Because he said, I want you to look at this. It says, the Lord has need. If we really want to get technical, has God ever needed anything? But this is what's cool um, and I love this phrase that I've, I've read. It says, this is the paradox of our Lord's earthly life. That he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. The paradox of our Lord's life is that he was the God and master of all the universe, but he freely gave up his glory and his riches so that we, an unworthy, poor, indebted, enslaved 
people would be made rich and righteous because of him. Jesus owned all things, yet he possessed nothing. Look at this. Jesus created the stars, yet he had nowhere to lay his own head. Matthew 8, 20. Jesus fashioned everything there is out of nothing, yet he had to borrow a boat to preach his gospel. Jesus created every drop of water that exists in the world, yet he cried, I thirst, as he was dying on the cross. Every God, Jesus Christ created every tree, yet he died on a borrowed cross. Jesus created every rock, yet he had to borrow a tomb in which to be buried. And Jesus will use the clouds as his chariots, but yet for the time being he had to borrow a donkey in which to ride. Jesus was rich, but he made himself poor, that those who believe on him might enjoy his riches. So by God's grace, by his providence, the owners let the animal go, and Jesus makes his procession into Jerusalem. I want us to look at the procession. They throw their garments on the beast of burden. They're climbing down. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And I want us to look at Jesus again being humble. It talks about in Zechariah that Jesus is the humble Savior. Jesus came in in humility with no thought for his own in his earthly life, but for your benefit and for my benefit. What's interesting here is that, you know, the Messiah, Christ, came in humility, but for onlookers, especially the Romans, this must have seemed like a joke. I want us to look at this idea of this, this Roman triumphus. I mean, Rome occupied Jerusalem. There were soldiers stationed everywhere. And, and they understood that when great military leaders of their day were to come in, it would come in with pompous circumstance. It would be a mighty horses with parades. They would return from battlefields with spoils of war. They would have the heads of their enemies on poles, etc. And what they see is that there's this procession of great massive crowds following Jesus. And they're looking at it. And I'm sure the guy who's on the watchtower is looking and saying, who, and they're probably saying, who is it? And the guy in the watchtower saying, well, it's some guy and he's, it looks like the one they're hailing is riding on a donkey. I'm sure that must have been ridiculous to them. I'm sure that Jesus' entrance must have been a joke because if anyone was worth their while, was worth their stuff back then, worth their salt, they would have ridden on a horse. But Jesus came humbly on a donkey, signifying his humility to be our Savior. And what's really neat is that the events that Christ would orchestrate during this time would eventually one day topple the Roman Empire. If you study your history, folks, which I hope you do, know that really the reason that Rome fell was because of the influence of Christianity. That though they might have been laughing and mocking at Christ's entrance this time, because of Christ's death and resurrection and the followers that he would amass and accumulate, Rome would topple to his knees. Because Christ is the humble king who came to bring true victory. Christ is the lowly one, but Jesus is also the lofty one. I want us to, I want us to look at this. This is significant. So go ahead and look in verse 5. They throw the cloaks on Jesus, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing on tying the colt? We see that they took the colt. They went back to Jesus. They threw their cloaks. Jesus is riding and, and making procession. And it says they start putting cloaks on the road, and they start taking leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's going on here is, is several things. First is that Jesus had a huge group of people following him from Bethany. It says there, there was crowds bef- uh, preceding him. 
and crowds before him. There were people anticipating Jesus. Remember, they heard what was going on. And as soon as Jesus started making headway, groups of people were running to the front. They were going to Jerusalem and saying, look, Jesus is coming. So you got people from Jerusalem coming to meet Jesus and people from Bethany and the other towns coming to follow Jesus. So you had a massive parade of people coming. They anticipated, this is it. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And they were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what's significant about that? It's more than just a Hillsong song. We sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's, it's, it's not that. Not how we understand it. This was a song of petition, of desperation. It's found in Psalm 118. What's neat about that psalm is that's part of a collection of other psalms that was called the, the Hallel Psalms, the praise. They would use this on their pilgrimage. Jews would sing these psalms on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Passover. This would be what they would learn from, from a youth, from a time they were little tiny tykes, all the way to manhood or, or womanhood. They would sing these psalms as they go to Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed see you, comes in the name of the Lord, anticipating that the Messiah would one day come. But now they believe their Messiah has come. And so they're shouting to desperation, Jesus, save us. Hosanna means save us now. Save us. Save us from what? From Romans. Save us from this Roman oppression. We've had enough of this. We've had it for hundreds of years. Do this. Free us. Kill our enemies. Save us now. Save us now. Save us now was the anthem that was going on at this moment. The Jews were wanting Jesus to kill the Romans, to kill the emperor. They were wanting Jesus to establish Israel once again, rise it to the level of height and glory that they once had. They were looking forward to it. The And even Jesus' own disciples, as we see, although they believed he was the Messiah and the Son of God, they still didn't understand Jesus' mission because they thought the exact same thing, and they were wanting the highest positions in the kingdom for power. So everyone, including his disciples, are saying, save us now, Jesus, from the Romans. Save us now. O Lord, do save. We beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee. Do send prosperity. Save us now. The crowds were shouting for salvation. That was their initial hope, was salvation from Rome. But little did they know that Jesus was entering to bring us different salvation. It would be a salvation that was spiritual. They were looking for a superficial salvation. Jesus was giving a complete and true salvation. The most important salvation of all, which is freedom from sin, because every man will stand before God on Judgment Day. And he is making it available for man to be forgiven of their sins. Jesus was going into Jerusalem to be the Savior. And so these people were shouting in ignorance. They thought they knew what Jesus was coming for, but they hadn't a stinking clue. But it was a pretty happening deal. It was triumphant. This was a triumphal entry. They were excited that Jesus was coming because they thought he was going to triumph over the Romans. But he came for a different reason. They thought when Jesus entered the gates of Jerusalem, he was going to start attacking the Romans. But interestingly enough, as we read in the next few weeks here in Mark, that Jesus, instead of attacking the Romans, attacked the Jews. He went into, we're going to see the next day, that after, the next day Jesus is going to go into the temple and he's going to overturn the money changers' tables. He's going to clear house. And he's going to purge false worship. He's going to attack them at the center of their religious life and saying your religiosity is stupid and I hate it because you have corrupted my law. You've misinterpreted what I have said and I am cleaning house. These very Jews who are worshiping Jesus were going to be attacked and confronted at the very heart of who they are the next day. And again, because God does nothing capriciously, it was all calculated because Jesus would stir the pot once again by doing that event. And the Jews 
who are hailing him now as king will ask for him to be crucified in five days from now. Little did they know that they themselves will call for his death. Over in Psalm 118, verse 25, it says that they're going to be singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there's a next part that is often overlooked. Verse 26 says this. They're shouting, look, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So let's do this. Let's bind the festival cords, the festival sacrifice with cords. Let's take the sacrifice for our sins and put them on the altar. Little did they know unwittingly that they would be doing just that that they would be crying out for Jesus, the Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb, to be slain on the cross. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He's making his procession into Jerusalem, stirring the pot little by little. And I want us to look at, finally, the purpose of the king. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he weeps. We don't get this remark, but over in Luke 19, it was recorded that Jesus, as he watched Jerusalem, wept because he knew their unrepentance, he knew their sin, and he knew what destruction would happen because they would reject him. Jesus knew that within 40 years of this time period, the Romans would besiege Jerusalem. Jesus knew that in, th- in, in that period that over 30,000 Jews would be crucified as legions of Romans m- marched toward the city. He knew that the city would hold out for months while the people succumbed to disease and starvation. He knew that bodies, dead bodies of Jews would be accumulated and thrown over the walls of Jerusalem, and they would pile their dead. Jesus knew that the Romans would conquer the city and the temple as it was utterly demolished brick by brick because the people would not repent and receive Christ. Over in Luke, it says that Jesus was weeping as he was going to Jerusalem because he knew the people's sin. And he knew that what had to happen was that they would reject him. And it broke his heart. Jesus truly was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus goes in also to examine the temple. Verse 11, read with me. He says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when Jesus had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany. So here's, here's the deal. I'll, I hope you guys see this, is that Jesus has this massive hundreds and probably thousands of people walking this road, shouting, Hosanna, save us now, save us now, save us now. And right when they get to Jerusalem's gates, it's like the crowds depart, and Jesus is alone. That's kind of a, kind of a blah ending to a procession, wouldn't you say? You have, this ma- you, have, you have Barack Obama driving into town, and as soon as he reaches, you know, Kansas Expressway and I-44, the crowd stops. And the president is riding solo. It's interesting. They, they, are, they follow Jesus. As soon as he enters Jerusalem, the party stops. And he goes alone. He enters the middle of the temple. It says it's evening. The sun is about to set. And Jesus examines everything. And because it's late, he goes back to Bethany. It's kind of weird. So what's going on? I want us to look at that. Jesus looked at all things. Why did Jesus go to examine the temple? It's for a specific reason. He was assessing what his people as the Jewish nation were doing. Because the next day, he's going to drive them out. He was getting his plan of action ready for the next morning's events. Okay, there's a table there, table there. They're doing this. This guy is, is ripping off this guy. This, uh-huh, okay. 
as he was going on. Jesus came to assess the temperature spiritually of what was going on in their worship service. And it got him angry, and he hated it. But he waited, because it was late, till the next day to make his grand opening as the professed hailed king of the Jews, as he was going to go and attack the Jews because of their hypocrisy and their religion. This was an official visit of Jesus as the king of Israel, giving an inspection tour of the heart of the nation. And what he saw was money changers and exploitation, corruption and injustice. He saw that religious ceremonies were being carried on without any meaning whatsoever in the heart of the worshipers and was being taken advantage of by businessmen and pioneers. And Jesus was going to get angry and make them know that the next day. It says, it says over in Zechariah that your king comes unto thee. And the king did come to them. Jesus enters into his capital. He enters the heart of his nation, and he sees an unfaithful people. A few people did receive him, but as a whole, the nation rejected him. I want to look at three final remarks, because guys, this really wasn't a triumphal entry. It really wasn't a coronation ceremony. The Jews weren't trying to coronate Jesus at all, trying to make him king. They thought he was, but they weren't, because from an earthly perspective, this was a celebration that was done in ignorance of who Jesus really was and what, he's try- and what he truly came to do. Because when Jesus came and told them who he was, what he was going to do, when he opposed them for their hypocrisy, they rebuked him and rejected him and called for him to be crucified. From a heavenly perspective, this really wasn't at all a coronation. It really wasn't at all a, a, a triumphal entry. Because Jesus hadn't accomplished salvation yet. The mission of Christ wasn't fulfilled yet. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. He hasn't fulfilled his mission. He hasn't been the Savior. Jesus hasn't accomplished his mission yet that he came from heaven to do. He still had to die and be the sacrifice. And we know from Scripture over in Hebrews and in Philippians 2 that after Jesus rose again and ascended into heaven, he sat where? At the right hand of the Father. After he rose into heaven, he sat down again at his throne and was crowned as king of kings and lord of lords. God the Father says, my son, I am pleased. You have done what I have sent you to do. You have fulfilled your mission. Here is your crown. You are the king of kings and the lord of lords. You are the ruler. All authority I give to you now in heaven and on earth, as, as Jesus talks about over, you, over in Matthew. Jesus wasn't king yet. He was in one sense because he's God. But from an earthly perspective, in his relationship to us, he hadn't been our savior yet, and he hadn't been, and he hasn't, and he didn't accomplish the mission that God the Father required for him to be the name above all names. But Jesus is the name above all names. He is now crowned in heaven, and he is ruling on his throne. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is King and Lord. And the real, this wasn't a, a coronation or a real triumphal entry at all because the real triumphal entry is when Christ comes back. Read with me in Revelation 19. And then we'll conclude. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, John says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... So Jesus came in on a donkey, but he's coming back on a mighty white horse, on Shadow Fox. 
Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Christ came humbly on a donkey to bring salvation. He's going to come back mighty on a white steed to bring judgment on sinners who did not believe. Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood because he has already been the sacrifice. Jesus wasn't a sacri- hadn't been the sacrifice yet at this point in Mark 11, but when Jesus comes back, he has already done that. So his robes are dripped in blood because of his sacrifice, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Jesus had a mass of people walking on the ground who didn't really believe in who he was. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to have people who did believe, who do believe, whom he has redeemed. And they're not going to be walking, but they're going to be riding on horses too. Jesus comes with a, and his mouth will have a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus came humbly and lowly and meekly, but he will come again in strength and power, and he will flex his muscles. Then it concludes and says, And Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on Jesus' robe and on his thigh, Jesus has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus' true triumphal entries when he comes back. 2 Thessalonians says that Jesus is going to come back to do vengeance on all those sinners who did not believe because we deserve wrath from God. We deserve to be judged by God. Our sin is despicable in God's eyes, and he will judge us. But because of his great love and his great mercy, he sent Christ riding humbly on a donkey to be the sacrifice. Christ died on the cross, and he's giving time and room for men of all ages and sizes in all generations to repent, to turn away from sin, to believe. Because although he is the good and righteous and loving God that he is, he is a holy God, and he will one day come to judge the world in righteousness through Christ. And if you can see, it's going to be a rocking deal. It's not going to be humbly on a donkey. He's going to come with a sword out of his mouth, figuratively speaking. He's going to come with a sword out of his mouth. His eyes, instead of being filled with tears because sinners were not repenting, is going to be inflamed with hatred of sin and a purity of justice. He's going to come back and he's going to not offer salvation to the nations, but judgment on the nations for those who reject him, who refuse to believe. Jesus is coming back on an earthly perspective to be, to rule here on this earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's already in that position and he's doing it in heaven, but he's going to come back and he's going to do it here physically on earth. It says in Second Thessalonians that he's going to come with vengeance to judge sinners for their sin, for those who did not believe the gospel. And he's also going to come to be marveled at among his saints. Jesus is coming to judge sinners and to restore the world and to, with his saved people, be with him for all of eternity. And we're going to marvel at Christ's return. We're going to marvel at Christ because he loved us so much that he gave his life for us, and by his grace brought us to a point where we saw our sin and we believed. Jesus is 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will come again. And are you ready? Are you ready for Christ to return? If you have not put your faith in Christ, if you have not seen your sin for the filth that it is, and be honest, Jesus tells you today can be the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Turn away from it. Reject it and turn to him. And if you have put your faith in Christ, are you ready in terms of faithfulness? Because although you won't be judged for sin, he wants to reward his faithful. He wants to reward those who are on donkey duty. Are you going to be faithful? Will you be found a good and faithful servant? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this truth. I ask that you would help us to remember that you are a, help us to remember how wonderful you are and how good of a God you are, and help us to remember that you are mighty and awesome and powerful. Jesus, please help us to understand that what you are doing here in Mark, which happened long ago, was, was, was living out one step at a time what was necessary to be our Savior, to forgive us of our sin. Move us to a greater love for you because of that. Move us to a greater affection for who you are. And I ask that you would help us as a church to be more, more in love with you every day, to be more faithful to your word, to be willing to be on donkey duty, to be willing to, to be busboys and slaves of all, to serve for your namesake. I ask, God, that you would help us to rejoice now when we say Hosanna, when we know that we have that salvation, and we long for when you come again to return to fully and with finality finish the power of sin off and eradicate its presence. We want that, and I pray that you'd help us to yearn for that more, that like what Titus says, that we would eagerly await and hope your return, the coming of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we eagerly wait and look for that. And may you fill us with passion and God with, with, with a love and, and desire that, that lives faithfully to you and unashamedly for your name. Continue to help us to be faithful as a church, to be in this area and in our personal spheres of influence, light and salt of the work that you've done in our hearts because of grace. We love you, God, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.